Hello and welcome to another episode of Pakistanomy. My name is Zair Yunus and joining me today is my dear friend Khurram Hussain, who's incoming editor at Profit. Um, he's going to be starting there soon. And the initial goal for this podcast was that I would sort of use this time to get a sense of Khurram's priorities as he's coming in at Profit, how he thinks about business journalism in Pakistan, the need for nuanced conversations, etc. But as it turns out, the IMF agreement details have come out. There have been interviews and press conferences by government government ministers, including um, the foreign or the finance minister, Shaukat Tareen Saab. Um, there have been developments that the Senate seat um, that he's supposed to occupy has finally been occupied. So it's been a whole series of news related to the economy. And so we're going to touch upon that at the beginning um, and then talk about Khurram's incoming role at Profit um, in the later half of the conversation. And before I begin, um, a few weeks ago or months ago now in the summer, um, Khurram and I would have debates on WhatsApp and on conversations that, you know, the economy was heating up or overheating and things were getting out of balance once more. Um, and that, you know, perhaps the monetary and fiscal stimulus um, had been overdone. At that time, um, I was uh, on the opposite side of that argument with Khurram. But as it turns out, a few months later, he's been proven correct in his concerns about what was going on. So a lot has happened um, in those ensuing months. And so, Param, first of all, welcome back to Pakistanomy. Um, and kudos on that call, because I think you brought your experience and your understanding of previous such crises and previous such moments in Pakistan's economy to bear uh, and made sure that someone like me who doesn't have anywhere close to the level of experience had to reconsider their views. Uh, well, thanks for having me back, Ozair. Uh, you're a big man, I got to admit. Um, that uh, exchange we had back in the summer, um, yes, I think by then it had to me become crystal clear that uh, the stimulus has gone too far. Uh, but uh, to, be, to, to, to sort of take this a bit further, Ozair, if, uh, if, you know, if you look at some of my writings from even as far back as October, uh, you'll notice that... Uh, uh, back then, the government was celebrating the fact that the deficits have been closed, and they were celebrating last October, and I, I mean, they were celebrating the fact that the current account has entered into a surplus, and they were celebrating that as a victory of their own. Um, and back then, I had written a piece in which I, I, I had mentioned that closing deficits by themselves is not the solution. Um, it's what comes after you have plugged the deficits that really matters. Uh, and from there onwards, uh, what we saw was that the government did not really have any ideas about what to do with the economy. Uh, they didn't have any real legislative agenda. They, uh, they didn't really have any economic direction or any even sort of a strategic vision um, at play. Uh, now, some people argue that uh, the, what about their predecessors? You know, to some extent, you can debate, disagree, you can uh, uh, have your opinions, but it, uh, you have to admit that their predecessors brought at least some kind of a vision. And if you want to know what those were, uh, for example, the People's Party government in 2008 came in at a point where there was a massive transition of power taking place from uh, military to civilian uh, rule. And their basic vision was to build up the roots of civilian power in Pakistan and uh, ensure that to put this particular transition on a much more sound footing and a surer footing for the future. 
uh, and they did that through the 18th Amendment and the NFC award. Now we can debate this, okay? These have been uh, subjected to intense vilification campaigns over the years. Uh, there are plenty of supporters uh, as well. But whatever your position may be on uh, that particular uh, agenda that was implemented back then, uh, you can't deny that it happened and uh, that it played a huge role in shifting significant amount of uh, state power away from the federal center towards the provinces that are purely civilian in nature, um, where civilian power rules. And to this day, no one's been able to figure out a way to undo it. It was done in such a manner that uh, it's simply irreversible, short of a coup that completely unilaterally rewrites the constitution and whatever. Uh, and also note that this agenda was implemented within the first two years of that government. We had both these things done and dusted and finished and done with. Note also that both these things were done with a wide-ranging consensus within parliament. Uh, they were not bulldozed through. They were not railroaded through. They were not passed through ordinances or through joint sessions. Uh, there was a long uh, and a very intense and a very serious parliamentary consultation process, a parliamentary committee, and uh, it enjoyed widespread, both these acts enjoyed widespread uh, ownership among the entire political spectrum of the time. So it was done with consensus and has remained an enduring uh, feature of our polity ever since. We can debate its merits all we want. We cannot debate the fact that it happened and the fact that it exists. Likewise, with the Nawaz Sharif government, they came in with a vision. Uh, that uh, same vision they've always had, in a sense, which is big infrastructure, big visible projects. Now, again, we can debate, discuss, disagree. We can say these are expensive, these are this, that, whatever. What you cannot deny, however, is that roads were built, power plants were built, uh, um, the raw generation capacity was added, uh, a massive transmission line uh, was negotiated and uh, brought to the point where it could successfully be uh, begin work on and, and be completed, mass transit programs were built. Uh, we can debate the merits of all these all we wish. Uh, the fact is that this was their vision and they said this is the way for Pakistan to move forward by investing massively in civilian infrastructure, infrastructure to be used by civilians. And uh, this is the, the only way the economy will uh, find a shorter footing on which to grow and develop into the future. Now, again, we can say, no, this wasn't right. These programs were expensive. Uh, they, they left us a debt overhang. And then there's a lot to discuss and debate there. What we can't deny is the fact that this happened. What the, when this government came in, what we need to now ask, well, I mean, we've been asking all along, is what has been their vision? Right? What, what exactly are they up to? Uh, they had one vision that they had outlined in the, tour, in the white paper in 2013 that they released in the run-up to the 2013 election. They had another vision that they outlined in their uh, election manifesto in 2018. Um, and uh, now uh, we are left wondering because in the 2018 election manifesto, they said there will be no privatization, for example. We will turn around the state-owned enterprises. We will broaden the tax base. Uh, we will not burden the populace with additional taxes. Uh, these were the kind, and uh, we will increase allocations for education and uh, and health. Um, now, to what extent have they really stood by this? You know, we've had uh, uh, we've had stop and go progress, uh, no progress, uh, back to square one, and all of these. But state-owned enterprises losses have they gone up, down? Uh, has there been any? Uh, uh, um, what happened to the Samaya? Uh, company that they were going to set up, the professional managements and the boards that were going to be brought in. 
to to uh, bring about change in the state-owned enterprises? Can we point to any meaningful change that has been brought about over here? Can we say that the tax base has been broadened in meaningful ways? Um, can we say education outlays have increased? I mean, they've brought the, the one reform anyone can point to in the education side is a single national curriculum. Uh, but beyond that, is there any structural change that allows for enhances access to education for students from underprivileged backgrounds, for example, that tries to increase enrollment rates between, uh, 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 you know, beyond the, uh, the beyond school into college, that tries to uh, uh, address gender disparities in school enrollment rates as well. Um, you know, we left wondering at this point in time what exactly is the big idea behind the PTI government, and that's what I was asking back in October when they plugged the deficits. Uh, that this is usually the starting point; it's not the ending point of uh, economic management. The whole purpose of deficit reduction is to stabilize the macroeconomic framework, to prevent runaway inflation, to prevent your exchange rate from sliding into oblivion, to prevent your reserves from depleting, and your public debt burden from uh, increasing to levels where your debt service obligations are larger than your total revenue collections. Um, and uh, once you have brought the macroeconomic framework under control, that is the moment when you are supposed to act and say, okay, this is our vision and this is what we are going to implement. We didn't see any of that. What we saw instead was the announcement of a construction package, which happened about if in October they were celebrating the disappearance of the, de of the deficits, in November they were announcing a construction package. Now, if, you, if anybody believes that that is some kind of a new or radical idea in Pakistan's economic thinking, needs to take a you know, a short look at our own economic history and look at how construction is, is, one, is something that governments routinely reach towards uh, to try and provide a short-term boost to, uh, to, to the economy. It cannot be described as some kind of a visionary change uh, or something, you know, uh, that, that is transformative uh, in nature. By December, they were approaching the IMF. They were in talks with the IMF. And at the same time, the prime minister was saying the economy is moving in the right direction. And in those months, I was writing that, you know, uh, if your economy is moving in the right direction, why are you going to the IMF? I mean, usually when the economies are moving in the wrong direction, that is when you go to the IMF. Um, so if you're going in the right direction, congratulations, move on, move on along. Um, most countries, once they uh, find themselves moving in the right direction, write to the IMF and say, thank you very much. No need for any further tranches or any further um, uh, lending arrangements from you. And um, <clears throat> so from there onwards, it's basically been a story of massive macroeconomic stimulus uh, that, uh, that, that, that uh, they were preparing to administer long before COVID even came. And uh, um, we know this because you'll find statements, and you'll find meetings, and you'll find uh, uh, the, the prime minister himself showing signs of adjustment fatigue round about September, October of last year. And by November, December, they were really sort of uh, uh, gearing up that enough is enough. We need to slash interest rates. We need to up government spending. We need to uh, uh, slash tax the tax burden on people and really get this economy moving. Um, and COVID gave them the cover to do that. That's all it did. Uh, they didn't really manage COVID. They used it as, as an opening to... Uh, to, well, okay, I shouldn't say they didn't manage COVID. They managed the vaccination drive rather well. And uh, over there, there has been uh, you know, admirable progress. 
And uh, whatever faults one may uh, want to find, we can't deny the fact that it has moved along and uh, very, very rapidly and, uh, <clears throat> and uh, you know, may it continue moving along rapidly. But uh, beyond that, COVID provided them the opportunity and the resources <clears throat> because massive amounts of aid uh, estimated from between four to five billion dollars from the IFIs plus another estimated $5 billion through the debt service suspension initiative of the G20 countries that kicked in around July uh, or, or, or so. Uh, cumulatively, this gave them a, a, a space, breathing space of almost $10 billion on their current account, uh, with which to finance uh, a monetary and a fiscal stimulus, the likes of which I've never seen uh, before. And I've seen some pretty large ones. And I'm old enough to remember the monetary and fiscal stimulus of Parvez Musharraf that, going, that got going right after 9-11. And that was massive by, by, the, by the standards of Pakistan's economic history. This was next level. This was something else. And the results were there to see for us. The economy sprang from 0% growth to 4% growth. I have never seen uh, in Pakistan's history a 4 percentage point jump in the GDP growth rate in one year. Um, maybe two, three, maybe there might be one year we've seen it, but it, it, that, that is, uh, you know, a, an epic and history-making jump in, uh, to, to, to see in one year. Uh, but the volume of resources that they poured into the economy, the State Bank itself put it at 5% of GDP, and that's just what the State Bank provided through three refinance facilities and through, one of, and through the single largest interest rate cut, again, in uh, Pakistan's history. Six percentage points within a matter of months. Uh, so given this kind of a boost, where you're pouring 5% of GDP worth of resources into the country's economy, and you are securing 4% of incremental output against that, uh, you know, this kind of a gambit, I've never seen before. Uh, and they justified it in the name of COVID, that uh, we've, uh, although there were no real COVID lockdowns over here, industry had begun opening up only weeks after the lockdowns were announced back in March, March 26. Weeks later, the industry was, uh, uh, was being opened up. But there were no real lockdowns on industry. To some extent, COVID may have hampered some uh, industrial activity, some exports, because uh, export markets were shut. Uh, but domestic markets were functioning fine through the COVID period. And uh, uh, it, it was hard to see how COVID is necessarily hampering economic output in this country. But nevertheless, it justified a massive economic stimulus. The point I'm trying to make is that they were rearing to do this before COVID even came. COVID provided them the perfect excuse, the perfect cover. Uh, it gave them a, a reprieve from the constraints of the IMF program. It gave them the material resources with which to it was literally manna from heaven that dropped into their laps the way 9-11 and its aftermath dropped into Parvez Musharraf's lap out of nowhere uh, and uh, gave him the chance to take the economy to 9% growth rates by, uh, by uh, 2004. Uh, the same story repeated itself over here. Uh, but as we have seen in the past, our own past teaches us that whenever this happens, uh, there is a massive increase in the monetary aggregates of the, of the economy. Uh, and as soon as that happens, with a lag of sometimes six, sometimes eight, sometimes nine, sometimes 12 months, but always, always inflation follows, high inflation, and attendant current account deficits uh, with it. Because uh, the kind of growth that gets going is heavily consumption-led, 
And even our industrial growth that gets going is uh, heavily dependent on imported in inputs. Uh, and there's a spike in, uh, in energy usage. All of the import bills uh, across the board begin to, uh, to kick into motion. And, uh, and, and you land up back to square one, in a sense. Our history teaches us this. So I started making that call uh, pretty early. You can go back and look at my pieces from back in December, January, February. Uh, and uh, you'll find me pointing out that they are rearing to go. Uh, they're, they're tired of the adjustment that Hafiz Sheikh had been presiding over for about uh, uh, one fiscal year, barely just over one fiscal year, maybe five quarters. Uh, they were, and uh, once COVID hit, uh, it was pretty easy to make the call that uh, this, what they are doing, the stimulus that they are administering, yes, it will give you output growth, but it will be the kind of growth that will land you straight back uh, on the doorstep of the IMF, except this time uh, they've got an added problem. You see in 2018 when they went to, uh, well in 2018 when they went to the IMF, uh, there was a current account, a very high current account deficit, very large fiscal deficit, very low reserves, but there was very low inflation. Inflation was not as big a concern back then, uh, at least not something that required emergency steps to bring under control. Um, today it is. Uh, so you've got, uh, uh, but today, they will argue that the reserves are a bit higher, so that's providing a bit of a cushion. Uh, but uh, let's see. Let's see if without an IMF program where these reserves stand within six months, eight months. I have seen Pakistan's foreign exchange reserves go from record highs. I've seen governments bragging about record high reserves, only to see those dwindle to less than one month import cover in less than 18 months. We've seen that. Uh, I, I myself interviewed Salman Shah in the closing years of uh, the Pervez Musharraf regime, and he would be on the air bragging about this. And uh, 18 months later, boom, those things were gone. Uh, Pete Sheikh was bragging about record high reserves in 2011, 2012, but 2013, they were gone. Uh, it's not the first time. Uh, so even with the, you know, just like our growth rates, our reserves are also uh, fleeting and passing phenomena because the majority of them are, are, are borrowed and uh, uh, in many cases borrowed on short-term um, <clears throat> basis. So I think the lack of sustainability of this growth spurt was evident from the very beginning, from the get-go. It was easy to see. What I'm surprised by is uh, not the intensity of the growth spurt, but the, sh but the duration, the fact that it lasted only, it lasted less than, uh, barely less than a year. Uh, it's hard to, to say that it lasted much more than 12 months. Um, we might yet hit 4%, 5% growth rates again by, by March, April, whenever the data is released for current fiscal year by March, April this year. Uh, but I think at that point, we'll be asking whether it was worth it, whether growth obtained at this cost is really worth it, and whether that constitutes uh, the direction in which the country should be moving uh, or whether that is the right direction in which the country should be moving, and certainly whether or not this constitutes a transformative vision of some sort. It doesn't. This is simply pumping growth through monetary and fiscal levers, uh, and that always brings about a crash in, uh, in, in our economy. And that's where we stand today. Today they've admitted it. We saw the finance minister himself admit yesterday that uh, the growth sort of uh, uh, over, <clears throat> overshot our expectations, and it is not sustainable. He himself has used the word overheating to describe the economy. Those who follow the economy like yourself, Ozer, and uh, your friends left and right, uh, they know what a serious thing it is when a finance minister and a state bank governor 
describe the economy as overheating. That's a that's an intense word. That's a very serious word for a policymaker to use uh, to describe the state of affairs in their own economy. But today they are doing it. In fact, Shokatari began using this word weeks ago. I saw him use it on the air as well. Um, so I was surprised to see uh, that uh, as the growth figure was announced and a new round of celebrations took place, that the state bank governor himself came on the air uh, and uh, said that this time round, our growth is sustainable. He knew it wasn't at that time. Rasa Barkin knew full well when he made that remark on the air that this growth rate is not sustainable. He must have known. Because the, the monetary aggregates that were underlying this growth were themselves showing that. It was obvious that this can't possibly continue. People within the state bank knew that this isn't going to continue. And Raza is uh, not somebody to be you know, swayed very easily. He's a smart guy, as we both know. He's got a PhD from Berkeley. There's no way that he could have missed the, the, the underlying macroeconomic indicator, uh, especially in the monetary aggregates uh, and in the, in the current account, because the current account deficit had begun shaping up as early as January. It didn't, uh, uh, it didn't materialize suddenly in June. It didn't spring out of nowhere suddenly in September. It's been growing steadily since January. I wrote about this as far back as March, April, May, June. In those months, I was writing that, look, the current account deficit is now growing faster than your large-scale manufacturing that you, that you uh, enjoy. Uh, touting as a measure of success. Import, uh, the trade deficit is rising faster than your exports are, that you enjoy touting as a measure of your success. Uh, inflation is rising faster than the GDP growth rate is, that you enjoy touting as a measure of your success. This whole growth spurt is ending. It's crashing. It was crashing even back then. And that was the time, in fact, March, April, that was the time to have started saying that uh, this thing is not going to last. We need to start unwinding these uh, stimulus measures. Uh, otherwise, they will land us in deeper trouble. And we will have to undertake a more painful contractionary adjustment than we do have to now. Uh, and that's where we are now. Um, I was astonished to see one of the agreements in the IMF program is a four rupee increase in the price of petrol every month from here onwards. Now, different, uh, you know, Wait till the third or fourth such increase happens, along with the price increases that come from uh, pricing in the depreciation and the devaluation. Wait till, wait, wait till you know, the government itself sees where this is landing, where this is taking. Um, I'm afraid these guys are now in for a very, very difficult time. So there, there's, a lot, there's a lot to unpack here. Um, in terms of the overview you gave, um, I want to start with sort of like what the opposing position if let's say a person who is sort of either critical of you and your writings of which there are many, um, or if there's a person who um, is more in line with that this is government has a vision that is trying to change things. Um, Etc. Of which there are many, and there's an overlap between those two, right? Which I also, over the years, have found interesting in the sense that you know, when you give the rundown of the PVP and what happened in the PMLN, um, a lot of the issues um, that you are now criticized for, um, you're criticized by the previous regime. It's just that people have short-term memories and forget uh, what you were writing and flagging the same red flags that many of us have been flagging for a number of years in terms of the sustainability of growth in Pakistan. But if, if sort of you look at the post 2018 agenda, um, someone who's more inclined towards the PTI would say, look, 
we do have a vision. Our vision is human welfare. And so you look at things like the expansion of the SARS program, you look at things like the Sehat and Saf card, um, you look at things like the Kamyab Pakistan and Kamyab Jawan program and what's happened there. Even on the construction side, some of them, many of them actually don't really debate this point on the amnesty scheme, but what they do point out um, to the fact is that low cost housing and financing around that has picked up and that's a commitment of the party. Maybe they didn't execute it well, but their rebuttal would be, well, what other government has executed programs well before them? In any case, there's obviously issues related to that. I'm just putting that on the record as sort of a rebuttal that people would have. Um, and I don't want to get into this debate on what the flaws in that argument are. You've laid out um, a point of view on that very, very clearly. And, and to an extent, I agree with most of what you said around that, particularly around construction amnesty, like the, the fact that a party who talked about anti-corruption, anti-elitism of economic hitman, so to speak, um, before it came to power, the fact that it has given the longest ever construction amnesty scheme in the history of this yeah. country um, is an indictment in and of itself, of its vision, um, in my view, at least. Um, I want to come to the post sort of like early 2021 um, things that started shaping up and what happened. Look, the first point I want to sort of get your take on and, and maybe debate a bit is, when you say that you know they unveiled a big monetary and fiscal policy stimulus, the pushback would be, well, everyone in the world did that. Um, this was a pandemic, it once in a century occurrence. And so to the extent that even, you know, you mentioned the finance minister saying we're overheating, and you're right, he he was here in Washington and I was at a public event where he was speaking, and he I remember vividly say, said that our problem right now is not economic growth, it is too much economic growth because we cannot, and use these words, we cannot afford to grow at five over 5% 5 at this point in time because our economy cannot uh, you know, take that level of growth. Um, but to that point of the stimulus, one, the argument pushback would be everyone in the world did that. Um, and so Pakistan just followed suit. And number two, that the part of the inflation and current account deficit bonanza that has come or the crisis that has come in the last few months is mainly because of a commodity price boom that the world has seen. This has nothing to do with monetary aggregates. How do you respond to that point? Not everyone did the more. First of all, let's start with this. Not everyone did a stimulus of fiscal and monetary. Some, many did. There were some who didn't, and then they saw the economy plummet into like much deeper negative territory, negative GDP growth rate. Like India saw negative, what, 7% or a uh, uh, huge uh, nosedive in the. Uh, a country like Brazil administered a stimulus of about 8.3% of GDP, larger than ours. And look at their inflationary situation today. They're, uh, they're uh, uh, I think, struggling with an even worse situation. Um, yes, many countries did administer stimulus, uh, but, those, but many of those countries were the ones who were also taking aggressive mitigation measures at the same time. Uh, so they had something uh, against which to fight, first of all. Uh, if uh, there are widespread lockdowns uh, and industry is shut down and people are being, uh, have been issued stay-at-home orders, and people are being prevented from uh, coming out on the streets. Uh, and then they take a stimulus measure to provide some social protection to people to tide over these difficult times. That's one thing. Um, <clears throat> in the United, if you want to use examples like that of the United States giving uh, checks, individual checks to people directly through, uh, uh, you know, uh, through, the, through their tax network. With, with Donald Trump signing on to them just because he so thought that would win in the election. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
Um, but what we saw here was not really a, a fiscal monetary stimulus designed to fight the negative effects of COVID lockdowns because the lockdowns were opening up at the same time and uh, as the stimulus was coming in. By the time the stimulus kicked in by about July, there were hardly any lockdowns in this country. Pretty much everything had been opened up. Um, and, uh, and number two, there was some targeting of that to the poor through the SARS program in the early days in June. But after that, it was all targeted to the rich only. It was targeted to the industrial elites. I mean, how do you how do you justify a turf, a temporary economic refinance facility to import machinery using subsidized credit as a COVID, as a measure to fight COVID? Um, it didn't have anything to do with COVID. They were just using that as an excuse. Like I said, it gave them the cover under which to do what they were itching to do in any case before uh, beforehand. And the fact but that- so, uh, so, Sorry to interrupt, but on that turf point, before I lose my train of thought there, I agree it was covered. It doesn't have much to do with sort of COVID relief, et cetera. But then the pushback on that would be that the, a big part of Pakistan's sort of constant economic woes, both on the export side and the fact that we import a lot in the consumption-based side, is a lack of capacity in the economy. So w wouldn't it be a good thing, the argument would go, that we subsidize import of machinery? In fact, this was something the PMLN would talk about as well when the current account was going out, that we're importing machinery, boost supply side of the economy. Um, yeah. So why isn't but that? Not why? subsidized credit. You know, I mean, if you're using monetary stimulus, if you're creating money pretty much, that's what uh, subsidized credit does. It creates money. By all means, we do need to import machinery in order to uh, raise productivity. We need to improve the regulators. We need to, I mean, if you want to argue that these steps are being taken in order to boost productivity in the economy, then it would be nice to see them accompanied with many other steps to uh, reform the regulators, to uh, improve the, the, the business climate in this country. And I don't mean just taking those steps designed to, you know, expedite the approval of housing societies and removing all environmental protections along the way and regularizing those that have been rendered illegal uh, in the past. I mean, you know, take the steps necessary and bring into and put in place the right people in the in the regulators, like in the SECP or wherever. And then uh, and then we can argue that, yes, OK, something is being done to address the question of productivity uh, in the country. But if it's just a subsidized credit scheme designed for the rich, and then they argue that this is some kind of a structural reform measure to try and reverse the, the eroding productivity of Pakistan's economy over the decades. That doesn't ring very convincing to me. Uh, it sounds to me like basically you are trying to use subsidized credit to buy off the, the, the elites of this country, something that in the past military dictators have done. Um, every military government has done, by the way. That's what Ayub Khan did, it's what General Zia did, it's what Parvez Musharraf did. Not subsidized credit, but trying to buy the uh, allegiances, the, the support of the billionaire and the capital-owning elites of this country through uh, uh, giving them superior access to state resources, whether it's subsidized credit, whether it's uh, fiscal resources, whether it's uh, uh, easing of regulatory burdens, anything, tax breaks, um, uh, all, all of these measures were used. Uh, to me, it just sounds like uh, it's more of that coming in the form of on, and being justified with uh, where the rhetoric is saying, well, we're doing this to fight COVID, we're doing this to fight to increase productivity. But the reality is that they're actually just buying off the elites. Look at the construction package, for example, that was sold to us in the name of the poor. But, uh, you know, I'm hard pressed to find anybody who agrees that the main beneficiaries of this program have been the poor so far. Uh, there's not much of a low income uh, component. There's some perhaps. 
uh, but hardly any. Um, In fact, I, I would argue that the flow of all that illegal or ill-gotten wealth or black money through the whitening scheme has made land more expensive and prices have boomed thereby, thereby putting housing out of the reach of the middle class, which is already, or the lower middle class, which is already right. struggling through higher inflation on the other side. Right, right. I mean, I was going to come to the lower and mid, uh, the lower and, uh, and, the, and the middle class that you rightfully said have found that it's actually taken land out of their, uh, and their, their access to, uh, to housing has become even more difficult. But for the poor, um, for, uh, to whom it was specifically targeted and in the name of whom it was specifically sold to us. And it was one of the first things that the Prime Minister mentioned when he began lifting the lockdowns. The first thing that he talked about was the construction scheme. And he said, we are doing this so the poor and the hungry and the day laborers don't suffer during the lockdowns. Um, how many of those day laborers in whose name this housing scheme was being brought in uh, are now better off because of it? Look at real wages. Real wage growth between then and now uh, is consistently lagging behind. Uh, I mean, I can't, uh, it's tautologist to say real wage growth is lagging behind inflation. Uh, real wage growth has been declining ever since, and ever more steeply uh, ever since uh, that package was announced. So the, labor, the day laborers are in fact being left worse off as time goes on. And uh, how much of the bank credit that has actually been dispersed in the name of, um, you know, to meet that 5% cap that they are supposed to meet uh, is actually going to low-income categories. Uh, it's not that much. I don't have the exact figures here in front of me, but find me somebody who's willing to argue that, no, the low-income people are, in fact, the main beneficiaries. So he, he, on the wage growth side, again, sort of this brings me to my sort of second pushback that, you know, um, people would have is they would say, look, we came out of COVID, the prime minister and his team were committed to helping the poor. We did expand excess. We tried to bring, you know, reduced amount of lockdowns and the pain fell through that. Laborers through construction were getting jobs, but the real negative real wage growth or declining real wage growth, the data in the next few years will show us what happened exactly. But they would posit that that is mainly because commodity prices all over the world went up, thereby food inflation, in Pakistan, like all over the world, has gone up. You've seen the charts that I have also seen. Some of them are laughable at best um, that show that, you know, India is cheaper and India's food inflation is this or that. Um, but it, at the end of the day, they would argue that, again, that has things to do with climate change, increasing commodity prices, and it's not related again. So it's it's a different set of issues over there. Yes, that's right. They, they would probably argue, except then they have a hard time explaining why prices of goods that are not imported are also rising. Right. Um, so it, it's a hard argument to buy, first of all. But look, for a democratic government who, that has presided and bragged publicly about bringing about a rebound in the economy, that has publicly congratulated the people for the fact that listed companies have enjoyed record high profits for three consecutive quarters to turn around and tell an inflation burdened populace that all this is happening because it's a global phenomenon that india is not better or that india we are better off than india is um, even if that argument is true uh, the fact is that it's not going to uh, cut much ice. Which is, isn't, so, by the way, like I looked at, uh, I painfully went through uh, Indian Ministry of Stats data and Pakistan Bureau of Statistics data on just the food index. 
Um, yeah, yeah, it's not true at all. It's they're not true. It's a lie. I'm just saying that, uh, you know, the, what they are doing is a losing gambit to start off with. Even if it was true, uh, they would still lose because the people have heard them bragging about their economic credentials for the past many months now. And uh, people have heard them congratulating everybody on uh, not just record high growth rates, but record high profits by industrial, uh, by, 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 by businesses and companies. Um, and now people want to know, well, then uh, how come I'm worse off? And this argument's not going to cut ice. Of course, the reality, as you and I both know, is that yes, to some extent, the inflation we are feel that that we are uh, seeing is indeed driven by uh, uh, commodity price hikes. I think it would be uh, mistaken to argue that uh, that's playing no role or that there is no commodity. Of course, there is a commodity price hike. But tell me one thing: oil has oscillated between eighty and eighty-five dollars, you know, for the past few months. Right? You can go back to maybe July, August, September. It uh, rose sharply from 70 to 80. Then it has oscillated between 80 and 85 dollars. At the retail price, at the retail level, oil is 145 rupees. Petrol is 145 rupees. Now, if you look at the years 2010 to 2014, oil oscillated. International oil prices oscillated between 80 and 100 dollars throughout those five years, coming down below 80 dollars only for brief periods but basically staying between the $80 and $100 band throughout those five years. Why, why didn't we see 145 rupee petrol prices at the retail level back then? Despite the fact that back then there was a higher tax component in the cost build-up. There was a much higher petroleum development levy. There was a much higher sales tax incidence on petrol and diesel. Well, the, the, the direct argument for why that's the case, right, Karam, is, is that the rupee was at 100 back then or close to 100 and now is at exactly. 170. Exactly. It's the devaluation that has driven up this uh, price of petrol, which puts the focus back on the monetary factors, doesn't it? Which brings us back to why is there this devaluation happening in the first place that is driving up the prices of oil, that is driving up the prices of all food items across the country, which is why we are seeing inflation happening not just in imported food items like uh, palm oil, but also in uh, locally produced food items. Um, when Shokatarin was asking, what's the big mystery behind why wheat can be bought at X price in Jacobabad, but by the time it reaches Karachi, it is being sold at such a, uh, at a much higher price. I forget the exact numbers he was using. Uh, perhaps part of the mystery lies in this, that the cost of transporting it from Jacobabad to Karachi has increased by X amount uh, in, the, in, in the intervening period that he was referring to. So... You know, the, the commodity price hikes are there, certainly. And they do, they are playing a role in driving inflation uh, within Pakistan. Uh, but as one monetary economist that I was talking to, one person uh, whose work uh, influenced me, and I can't cite the person's name because it was a private conversation between me and him, but the way he put it, he said, look, if there are 10 points increasing in the CPI, and this is sort of like, you know, back of the envelope conversation, Saying, look, if, if there's a 10-point increase in the CPI index, eight of those are due to monetary factors, two are due to uh, uh, supply-side factors, which is how monetary economists talk about commodity prices. You know, they say supply-side and monetary-side uh, uh, you know, uh, pressures driving the inflation, uh, which, of course, leaves it open in the public discourse that if both are playing a role, the whole debate then revolves around assigning the weightages. And there, government rhetoric and uh, the government ministers have plenty of room in which to sort of 
you know, game the picture and say, well, this has a much larger weight than that does by presenting the numbers in a particular way uh, to make things seem a lot larger than they are. I think on, on, on that point, my biggest issue even now and for a long time has been like, whether it's the state bank or whether it's the finance ministry or the Bureau of Statistics, we never fully get a reliable estimate of what the output gap in the economy is. Because at least from my point of view, the argument would go that if there is an output gap in the economy and, and monetary, you know, aggregate monetary growth is sort of helping fill that gap, well and good because, you know, the excess money uh, chasing after goods, the goods will increase because there's a gap in the economy. But if we don't know, um, and the and the bank is unwilling to share if it has that data. I don't even know if it does or not. Who knows, right? But I think that's you're right. That muddies the picture in the sense that you know we can look at charts and some people can say no, it's not a monetary phenomenon. It's commodities. This that. I'm like, well, you guys are sitting in the state bank and you're economists. You have teams of people looking at the data coming in through the horse's mouth essentially. Um, just tell us what you're seeing. And and I don't understand. Why is it that we still don't have a really good sense coming from the state bank, even when it increased rates by 150 basis points of what the rationale for this was? Because if the rationale on the one hand is the government is arguing, saying this inflation is due to um, the commodity price boom globally, well, then my argument is how is a higher interest rate going to stop that? Um, and if your argument on the monetary aggregate side um, is incorrect, then even then the state bank is wrong in curbing money supply by raising the CRR or by, you know, increasing rates, et cetera. So I think that's a big problem because it, it's like damned if you do, damned if you don't, it's like they'll find the most convenient argument um, on either end of the spectrum where both of those things can't simply be true. Well, Ozer, it's my view that they have been actually doing this, not, uh, they've, they've been doing this uh, for, for years now. And uh, many governments do this to some extent. All governments sort of obviously try and you know furnish the best possible picture that they can and present that to the public. But uh, uh, it, I think uh, that that sort of thing is now being done on uh, you know uh, at, at a much more accelerated clip. Um, the, the the airbrushing of reality uh, is uh, I mean I've never seen it done to this extent and this extreme. Well. In, in pieces, in the, in the Pervez Musharraf years, a similar thing was happening, uh, where inflation was skyrocketing and uh, the regime was reaching for one argument after another, after another, after a third. Uh, and I could show you video clips I have of interviews that I did back then, and you would be impressed with the kind of arguments that were being made for why this inflation is not a problem. In fact, I think I might do that. I might take one of my old interviews and put it up on YouTube, and I'll, you should. And I'll tag you in that tweet. And, but then you, you got to commit that you'll actually watch the whole program. I did an, a whole 30-minute program on uh, inflation in which I interviewed about a dozen different economists. And I just took all of their sound bites and put them all in one go, in, in one. And just listen to how people back then were talking about inflation. Um, and I would love to hear what you make of it. I think you should definitely put it. And I think I, you know, coming from somebody who was like wonky one hour conversations on the economy, I think, um, and those that tune you in every week. I think I will watch it and a lot of people um, either tuning in here or on Twitter will watch it because I think it's important, right? Because that, that repeat of Groundhog Day, like Amar Khan, I was talking to him 
um, yesterday and he was like, this is Groundhog Day. It's like, you look at the IMF statement and it's like, the last one was the same. The previous one before that was the same and is the same set of issues. So I think you should, um, and, and, and we can talk about it once that's online and have a conversation related to it. The other thing I want to look at sort of, you know, obviously you said the party's over, the punch bowl is being taken away. And I agree with you. Um, how did you read the IMF sort of statement coming out? Uh, particularly around sort of, you know, their, the hints they gave around state bank autonomy, the mini budget. I think Tareen today um, or yesterday said by December, there will be a mini budget tabled in parliament. Um, do you think they're not fully telling the people what they've agreed to in the sense that only those like yourself and myself and a few others who know how to read between the lines of the IMF know what's been agreed to and they're not letting on what's around the corner? Well, IMF statements are always written in diplomatic language. Uh, and uh, they're not really written for every Tom, Dick, and Harry to pick up and read, uh, as we both know. Um, they are, in fact, their primary audience is the foreign creditors of the country. Uh, and the foreign creditors know how to decode it. And uh, they know that uh, what to look for and what not to. And the rest, they, they, they'll, they'll sort of pad and cushion it with all kinds of pleasantries. Uh, in order to, uh, uh, you know, avoid creating panic or giving, uh, 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 I mean, the, the IMF is, is not in the business of communicating with uh, the man on the street or with uh, just your lay audience. Um, but uh, having said that, there's one thing that makes this IMF statement different from any other I've read, in, uh, at least in the recent past. There may be one from many years ago, I mean, many decades ago, uh, but I've been reading them regularly for at least a decade and a half. Um, which is that normally a joint statement of this sort is released after everything is set and everything is done and the documents are ready to be transmitted to the board. This is the first time I've seen a joint statement come out which says that we have an agreement on a set of policies, some of which remain to be implemented and once those are implemented, then we will send the documents to the board. Um, maybe someone can find an example, I don't know, but it's, uh, it's either a first or it's very, very rare that, uh, that, that this happens. Uh, ordinarily, the IMF would have waited till the state bank bill passed before releasing the joint statement and saying that, okay, all conditions are, uh, are met, the staff is satisfied that we are now uh, at the starting point of uh, a new uh, phase in the program and we are satisfied to transmit these documents to the board. Uh, so this has come, this seems to have come midway. It's come halfway through. Um, why did the fund feel the need? quite easily. I mean, it's, it's quite easy to see it. There, there was a lot of pressure on the government of Pakistan to uh, uh, bring clarity on where do things stand with the IMF. The finance minister was beginning to look a bit silly since uh, mid-October. I think it was also building from the, um, the Saudi money that was promised, but you know, that started that whole silliness. Arrived. Yeah. And never arrived as we're still waiting for it. Um, uh, yeah, but, uh, but it, you know, and, and Shokhatarin is a serious guy. Let me just add that uh, he's somebody who's widely respected. Uh, he's got a lot of credibility. He speaks uh, very, uh, uh, you know, he's not somebody who lies or misleads in his public pronouncements. I've known him for many, many years. And I've never seen him struggle like this. Uh, he, he handled Pakistan's economy after the great financial crisis in 2008. And that was probably the single worst external shock this country has, uh, has received in many decades. 
And mind you, that occurred, mind you, the 2008 one occurred in the throes of a war that the country was just fully entering and recognizing what was going on. Absolutely. There were terror attacks happening every day in those in those days. I mean, I can't begin to tell you how much worse 2008 was compared to 2018. There is absolutely no comparison. But and he handled himself with, you know, admirable confidence through all of that. This is the first time I've seen him fumbling and trying to find the words and the language and saying two days, next week, two days, very soon, two days, um, eventually tired of it. He must have told the IMF, look, release something or the other because uh, uh, this is, uh, you know, uh, proving too difficult for me. They said, okay, best we can release is that this is what's been done and this is what remains to be done. Uh, I think part of him fumbling maybe is also because he's an older man now. I think that's another um, part of the equation that we underestimate that the same people in serious positions today were there in 2008, but the difference, the key difference is 13 long years have 13, gone by. 13 in that, long in that. years have gone by. That's true, not to be underestimated. But nevertheless, I do emphasize that I retain a good degree of respect for, for Shokat Zareen. If you listen to how he spoke in his press conference uh, just yesterday, um, you know, it's been a long time since we've had a finance minister who's spoken this bluntly and uh, told us in so, in, in so many clear words that this is what's happening, this is where we stand. Uh, we've had far too many who've been giving us either rosy pictures or delusionary pictures or something. Uh, so in any case, but moving ahead, if you say, if you ask me, what, what do I notice? Uh, aside from the fact that this joint statement is coming and announcing unfinished business, um, and that's something worth being taken aback by. Um, the other thing is, the the scale of the adjustment that they now have to undertake it's quite large 800 billion rupees is the figure that uh, the IMS, the statement doesn't put a figure obviously the the statements don't the, these joint statements never put a figure on it they just they're directional um, in nature uh, but uh, a large part of that uh, adjustment the burden is going to be falling on the revenue side um, the, the expenditure side, I think, the, whatever room there is to cut has been done already, but the revenue side is going to bear a large like, uh, portion of that. So, and, and then how many more um, interest rate hikes are left to undertake? Because uh, the, the statement is very clear, and by now the state bank is also being very clear that we need to, uh, uh, that interest rates need to become positive in real terms. So uh, the next question that arises, is uh, on what timeline are we thinking by deck five? Uh, sorry, when when the next statement due actually is? It's not, it's sometime in mid December. Yeah, mid December. Um, is that when uh, they, they're going to become positive, uh, or are we? Do we have a longer timeline in mind? The statement seems to imply, but it's easy to misread it. It's sort of it's evasive on the question of the timeline, but it also says that interest. So there are further rate hikes. There are there, there are very very large tax. Um, um, there's a very large tax burden coming for the people in the form of the petroleum development levy rising by rupees for every month in, and on businesses. So all of the goodwill that they invested so heavily through that stimulus measure that they, uh, to earn from among the business community, this government is now about to find out that this is a thankless community. Uh, they are not likely to remember all of that with any gratitude and uh, that it's a fickle community. That, uh, I was, uh, I, I've been telling people that, you know, if I am the prime minister, I would sit on my jainamaz with my tasbih five times or maybe more than five times a day and pray that the 
the oil prices internationally come crashing down and somehow Joe Biden's announcement today of releasing from the strategic reserve, which is backed by China, India, Korea, et cetera, um, does not cause OPEC plus to also cut production um, because they may do that to, to uh, combat the decline in price. Because if that happens, then perhaps six months down the road, things may ease up right before elections. Um, but you're right. I think there's a lot, a lot more pain coming. One question I had uh, before I sort of quickly touch upon your upcoming role um, is how do you make of this or what do you make of this sort of change, ad hoc change in the way the state bank uh, approaches monetary policy? They obviously brought forward um, the committee meeting. Then they changed the number of times citing best practices. And the third thing that I just noticed today um, was that rather than, I think they did not do the press conference, although correct me if I'm wrong there, but that's a typical habit that happens. There was a presentation made on a private phone call with, with analysts, but rather than address the media directly, the governor state bank went on a television show, Kamran Khan's once more, um, and also wrote an op-ed which I found really weird in the sense that typically if you cite best practices to say we're going to do eight of these meetings, then best practices also say that central bank governors don't really engage that much with the media, let alone write op-eds about why they're making certain decisions. How, what do you make of that? I think this state bank governor is way overexposed. Um, I, I think he's seeking the limelight. He's... Uh, uh, seeking publicity much more than any of his predecessors. And another thing I can confirm to you is that I've spoken to some of the, his predecessors and they are surprised about this. Um, they're saying state bank governors should typically speak through their monetary policy statements. And if they ever do make uh, public remarks, they are very broad, very directional. They should never appear as if they are being defensive and trying to defend. And they should never appear, and this is my own opinion now, they should never appear as if they are trying to um, support the government's policy. That's not a state bank governor's job. Least of all, a state bank governor who is asking for autonomy uh, from government, uh, from interference by government policy, who's asking for inflation fighting to be his mandate. He was probably the only champion left in our uh, power structure right now of the state bank autonomy bill. Uh, there's no, nobody else really championing that bill. He's the only one. Uh, and yet, uh, we have seen him repeatedly coming on the air and, uh, and writing op-eds and giving public statements about what a great job the government is doing in managing this and managing that, how everything is working out so well. And if there is inflation, it's all due to supply-side factors. Uh, I think these things have thrust him into a bit of a contradictory role. He's got a public profile now. He's going to have to defend himself in a, on the public space that he sought out himself. Um, and uh, at the same time, this is, a, this is in fact the time for the state bank governor to be out of the public limelight. Um, I was surprised that uh, after, for, after about the previous four or five monetary policy statements, they're constantly, in fact, much longer than that, they're constantly talking about uh, inflation as being the consequence of supply-side disruptions, temporary supply shocks, one-off uh, uh, wheat shortages, expected to go away when the um, next shipment of wheat arrives and blah, blah, blah. And to suddenly turn around in this one and say, well, in the recent past, we have seen real money supply growth uh, happen that has also pushed demand side pressures. Anyone can go and look at 
uh, and calculate the real money supply figures. They're there on the state bank website. It's not a difficult calculation to do. It takes for for people like you, it'll, it, it's a matter of less than one hour. You get that data and make that calculation, and you will see money real money supply has been rising consistently for well over eighteen months, and rising very rapidly. It's not something that began only recently. Um, <clears throat> So basically, he's having to embrace the inevitable after having spent months arguing that this inevitable may not come to pass. And he's having to attribute that to unforeseen circumstances. So he's having to sort of pull in fairy tales to try and uh, explain his actions now. Um, but the problem is that you can come on TV and you can fool the people. You can fool the, the, your, your audiences. But the business community that is being directly hurt and that is now beginning to mobilize against the, the interest rate hikes, you're not going to fool them that easy. Those are serious people and they're focused on their cash flows and they're focused on their, the, the impact that these hikes are going to have. And he has to implement more such hikes coming up. So he's in an extremely tight spot now and he will be facing a very, very angry audience. Uh, that only uh, recently would have been uh, hailing him as a hero for all his uh, refinance facilities and for all his money supply expansion because they were the beneficiaries of it. But the moment you turn off that spigot, uh, this same community will turn their backs on you and, immediately. That's and I think he's coming up, he's, his term is coming to an end um, in 2022 as well. So I, 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 I don't... Probably a good thing for him. Probably a good yeah. thing for him because he's not in a good position. Between now and at the end of his term are going to be really bad months for him. Very difficult before before I let you go again again thanks for taking out the time this was a great in-depth discussion around what's coming what's happened and and the fact that you know there is a value for the view of warning ahead of time and raising the yellow and red flag and saying hang on a minute we need to have a debate which connects me with you know my final question to you you're joining profit um obviously profit has done really well in terms of having a conversation focused on business economy. Um, what are your priorities there, number one? And number two, how do you see um, in this new role shaping a conversation around business and the economy in Pakistan, given how polarized the debate is, given how much misinformation is out there, um, and, and, and given how um, more and more prickly um, government ministers have started to get in terms of uh, their response to a media um, that criticizes them and critiques um, their talking points? Well, I'm very excited to be joining Profit. Um, I think they've done uh, some very interesting and some very good work in business journalism, especially with their focus on uh, uh, the corporate side. That's something that us in the, in the more mainstream media where I've spent the larger part of my career tend to ignore. And uh, we... Uh, you know, and, 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 and I think they filled a gap. And uh, I think that uh, Farooq, my predecessor, the, the first editor, uh, he brought a bit of a startup mentality to the position of the editor, right? He, it, it was a disruptive presence that suddenly came into our midst. And that's what startups do, right? They, they walk among all these giants who have commanding positions in, uh, in their respective spheres. And they say, well, there are these vast silences or there are these vast gaps that no one has filled. Um, if we start filling that and we can scale that up uh, rapidly, uh, we can perhaps destabilize some of these uh, giants and you take a large part of their space. 
um, in a sense, that's what that, that that's what uh, uh, profit did in itself. It was a it was a disruptive uh, enterprise in a good sense, in the sense that a startup is. Uh, I'm not saying that in a bad sense. Um, and I think that's a strength that needs to continue. And uh, I wouldn't want to come in and do anything to dampen that down and uh, and, and take that away from it. But on the other hand, uh, the real uh, economic conversation in this country is the one of the sort that you and I have just been having, actually. Uh, it's the issues that cut across the business community that uh, not just one, you know, you can write a very nice article about uh, how one particular bank is faring in one particular area, and everyone in the banking industry will read that article. But every business person will read an article about LNG, about impending interest rate hikes, about uh, what the State Bank Act is, uh, whether it's about to be passed or not, because these are the things around which the overall economic future is turning. Um, so you can't do without that as a, as a business and economic publication. So without compromising on or without in any way diminishing the, the focus on the corporate side that they have uh, built, um, there's also now space over there to, uh, to build the other side uh, of, uh, of their coverage. Um, there are some challenges that I see moving forward. Uh, I've been, I've spent the past few days meeting with the, with the team, uh, shaking hands, talking to them, uh, uh, one-on-one -on -one and, uh, and everything, getting to know the, the systems. I've not yet taken charge, obviously, and I see a lot of potential. There's a lot of very smart, very talented, uh, youngsters, uh, uh running the show over there. Uh, there's a lot of energy and a lot of enthusiasm about their work. Um, they clearly seem to enjoy their work, at least many of them do. Uh, and, uh, you know, those are essential elements of success. Um, you, you know, a young, talented, energetic, enthusiastic team uh, who can ask for more. Uh, well, the, the, but the thing is, in journalism, uh, the youthfulness of the team eventually then ends up showing. In the in the eventual coverage as well, and uh, the youth a youthful team will help connect with a youthful audience, uh, but a more mature audience will be looking for command over the the finer details around which the economic conversation in this country is revolving. And uh, so, some amount of experience uh, and and some amount of more focus on uh, the breaking news uh, combined with an, uh, with analysis side. Uh, will, I think, build on the strengths that they've already managed to build and uh, lift this publication up to its next level where it needs to go. Um, so, uh, you know, that, that's, that, that's the overall vision to basically expand the reach and the impact of, uh, of the publication. And um, I think to do that, retain the disruptive energy uh, that, uh, that, that they have so successfully, that has served them so successfully so far, uh, but then combine that with a, with a, by refocusing uh, at, at least a part of the, the publication on the, the breaking news side, uh, not saying that become, you know, we start becoming uh, uh, headline chasers, uh, but at least, you know, there are fine points where the headline, around which the headlines turn, and, uh, and, and, and you just showed an awareness of that by asking me about the fate of the SDP bill. As we all know, everyone's keeping an eye on that because very large wheels are turning on the question of what's up with the SBP bill. There's a reason why the business recorder ran its front page story on what the allies are thinking of the SB, on the SBP bill. 
because uh, that will decide the fate of whether or not Pakistan gets back onto the fund program and what uh, happens after that. Um, so, so analysis combined with breaking news, you know, somewhere in that space is the sweet spot of, uh, of today's journalism. Uh, and I think uh, bringing that focus into into the publication will uh, should help carry or lift it to uh, to its next step. I think uh, this is exciting, and 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 um, wish you all the best. I think part of the from my perspective, sitting here in Washington, the excitement is not only that you're connecting that sort of you know upstart disruptive mentality with a more mature way. We started with this conversation. I'm much younger. I grew up reading your columns. And you just schooled me over the last six months, right? I think we all uh, need that kind of mature schooling from time to time. But I think more importantly, a more mature, a more nuanced, um, and a and a more interesting conversation around business and economic journalism in Pakistan is good for Pakistan's own economic trajectory because it attracts a more mature type of person abroad to pay attention to what's going on in the country. And I think that's sorely needed. Um, we cannot do that. Um, uh, you know, engage with the rest of the world without being a part of that conversation. So wishing you and your team all the best on that. Yeah, go ahead. One last thing that I want. There was one thing you said along the way that I've sort of kept in my mind. I just want to come back to it quickly. You said that a lot of my, my pieces attract a lot of uh, 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 disagreement, put it mildly, right? You're referring to the Twitter trolling that... Uh, uh, I have been rece uh, the, re receiving for about a year simply because I'm running against the grain of what the government is saying. The government is saying the economy is moving in the right direction. I was saying it's not. And the response that I got to that was a uh, massive trolling. I just want to disagree with one thing, that uh, that sort of behavior is restricted to Twitter. And in reality, where journalists are concerned, Twitter is actually a, you know, it's a useful tool with which to disseminate your ideas and whatnot but it's not a place where one should go to shape one's thoughts and to allow it to shape your thoughts. So if 62,000 people follow me on Twitter and 1,000 of them are trolling me, I can very easily ignore those 1,000. They know that it's nothing. It's a noisy place. It's noise in the background. Uh, if I were to show you the kind of email uh, conversations that I'm having with very serious people in very serious positions around the world, about Pakistan's economy after reading my pieces, you would understand that you know the impact is uh, is there nevertheless. If uh, if a handful of people are trolling you, it's not something that uh, uh, in our day and age should really influence you in any way. Uh, I'll give you one example. In my October last year column, when I wrote that plugging the deficits is only the start, it's what happens after you plug the deficits that matters. Uh, a bunch of these trolls took that to mean that I'm arguing deficits are good. I did argue that, look, you plug deficits under some conditions, but under other conditions, you can actually carry them. And the, the example is India and Bangladesh that have uh, carried primary and current account deficits for protracted periods, for decades on end, uh, without depleting their reserves, without running up their, their public debt. Um, and here we are constantly having to plug and, and, and narrow our, our deficits. So, you know, it, it is possible to continue carrying deficits. I'm not saying that the ones we had are the, are the sort that you can continue carrying. But the point being that you have to, uh, the, the, what, what you do after the deficits have been plugged is what matters. These guys took that to mean I'm arguing deficits are good. 
And uh, for months after that, I had people taunting me saying, oh, Mr. Deficits are good. What do you have to say about it now? What do you have to say about that now? Look, our, our current account is still in surplus. And at one point, some government guy had said this is the first time the economy is growing and the current account deficit is, uh, is not increasing. I was like, well, that's not true. The current account deficit is increasing, but it comes with a bag. Let's wait and see. Well, where does it stand now? Right. Um, it was always going to come with a lag. The, the, the CAD as well as inflation, both those things. And it was known back then. But this sort of thing happens repeatedly. Uh, one piece of advice that uh, I do want to give to, uh, uh, to, to the, the young team that I hope to be leading very soon is uh, don't let Twitter shape your thoughts. Don't let it shape your mind. Use it as a tool, nothing more. And a lot of this noise that takes place on it is uh, largely irrelevant to your work. It doesn't matter. If you've got 60,000 people following you, uh, 1,000 of them are trolling you, it's, they're, they're irrelevant, those 1,000. Easily, uh, uh, e easily, easy to ignore. Uh, no, that, it, 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 fundamentally, they made zero difference to anything. No, that's, that's fantastic advice, especially um, for those of us who are digital natives and have spent our lives on social media. I think that is very, very valuable because um, the last thing you want to be doing in life in general, forget about in terms of shaping ideas, um, is to let social media um, dominate your view of the world because it is not yeah, the world. Yeah. It may seem like the world, but that's wonderful it's advice. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's metrics. And the social it's metrics. media metrics. Yeah. Yeah. You put something and, out, you get 200 retweets, and you start thinking, oh, I'm so popular. No, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't yeah. work like that at all. No, you're absolutely right. And on that note, thank you again for taking out the time. Um, thank you for Thanks your, for you. no, thank you for your contrarian take, wishing you all the best at profit. And, and we'll have you again in the next few months, because I think a lot is going to happen uh, before the first quarter of the next calendar year is over. And, and we'll see where the economy shapes up. But um, I am one of those who agree with you that I think we're uh, in, in for a rough period um, in the next few months. Thanks for having me there. Good to be on your podcast once again. Thank you.